Gaming on the Frontier. This is Bruce. This is Trav. And this is Jonathan. And tonight we're going to talk about what happens when you've done all this wonderful work, creating a beautiful world, and then you have to release it to the jackals. I mean the players. <coughs> Almost choked on my wine. <coughs> oh. oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, in the SCA, uh, they said, what's the most popular wine in the SCA? And the response was, I want to go to Panzix. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is all the the big meeting they yep. do once a year yep. up in Pennsylvania. Welcome to Gaming so, on the Frontier, folks. Yeah. Yep. We'll make fun of everybody. Your what your one stop shop for all things gaming nerdy and um, and you know covering at least a, a, a decade. <laughs> so today's topic is. Uh, the campaign pitch and the session zero. Uh, what happens when you are ready to start a new campaign and you're ready to sell it to your players so that they'll buy in? Well, okay, so you're assuming that the campaign pitch and session zero are two separate events? For me, they are. Um, but mm -hmm. I will note that ideally they are. It doesn't always work out like that. Sometimes it's, you know... In fact, a, a lot of times with uh, my older players, it was, hey, I got this campaign idea. Great. Let's do it. What kind of character do you need? I'm ready to go. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, and, and it's been that way for me, too, because through most of my gaming career, it's like, well, let's see. I got time on Tuesdays to run uh, Stalking the Night Fantastic or Bureau 13, as it became known later on as. Uh, who wants to play? And they're like, oh, me, 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 and stuff like that. And they never asked what it was about. They didn't ask, you know, uh, I mean, they had some idea of what the game was, uh, but they didn't have any idea of like what they were actually going to do in the game. And usually it was me telling them what they were going to do in the game, not what we're going to talk about right now, which, by the way, is a more is a far more superior thing. Same with the Fringeworthy. It's like, well, you're going to go through a portal and going to find a world beyond your expectations. And they're all like, okay, uh, can I bring a tank? <laughs> <laughs> like, like uh, yeah, sure you can. You can uh, figure out how to power it without uh, electricity. Yeah. Well, no, you just, diesel. Uh, okay, well, let's not get into the this, the the specialty things of Fringeworthy. But, right. Yeah. You know, uh, the uh, there were ways of doing a lot of things that they they it, it took some imagination on their part and a lot of imagination on my part over the years because you know um, I did a lot of development on Fringeworthy over the years. So it, uh, and also some Bureau Thirteen, but you guys did the most. Uh, and I'm referring to Trab. Yeah. You know, he added that whole second uh, second world thing into yep. it. But anyways, I'm just saying that for me, it's not been like, hey, you know, we want to do this campaign and this setting using this system. 
that hasn't been the way we've done it. No, so, yeah. Uh, tell us, tell us about this strange, unusual methodology <laughs> that you speak of, Jonathan. Because well, this is for because uh, the reason this came up is when we were coming up with ideas, I was like, well, I'm going to be looking to run a, a a campaign at the local hobby shop fairly soon once uh, my my little league kids are done with their little league for the season. I'm going to have free time again, so I'm I think I'm going to run a game at the game shop. And these are going to be people I don't know for the most part. These are going to be random people who, at least at this particular store, have just gone on a wait list and say, hey, we want to play, but there aren't enough DMs for us. So, you know. Oh, so you weren't for the LFG method looking the for. The LFG. Yeah. So, for, yeah. So when you're. So, and apparently looking for any game. Yeah, looking for yeah. any game. So, although I think most of them are going to be looking for D&D, I will pitch them. The other campaigns I'm I'm getting ready to run, Bureau 13 and Fringeworthy, we'll see if they bite. If, if not, that's fine. I'm, I've got two D&D campaigns. But anyway, point I being... I see D&D as a gateway drug into the other, oh, yeah, the yeah. other superior games <laughs> exactly. that I run. So I've got this sort of methodology, as you say, for the two first meetings, the first two sessions, what I call the campaign pitch session, where we just talk about <clears throat> what I'm looking to run... And how I run, and then another session we'll talk about later, which is this what a lot of people call the session zero, where everybody's getting together and creating their characters, working out interpersonal uh, relationships between their characters, kind of help setting it up so that when you get to that first real play session, you can hit the ground running and you don't having to do a lot of fiddly working around to say, oh wait, do we have a healer on the team? So you're saying it takes two sessions to get to the third actual play session. In general, that's the thing. Okay. I, I freely admit, sometimes... How long do you think this campaign pitch session runs? And personally, uh depends. I've had one like quick campaign pitch session that lasted two hours. So depending that on how quick. many people are there and how many questions there are, you know, you can do both of these technically in one session. Or... Well, yeah, I just, I'm just saying, what do you recommend? Campaign pitch, if, if you're talking about whole new people, I would be prepared for a session-long meeting, but... But what does that mean? How like long two, is Two that? to four hours. Two to four hours for the campaign pitch. I okay. doubt it takes four, but it can if you're especially dealing with a lot of new players who just All right. are unfamiliar. Well, break that down for us because I'd like to, to know what this campaign... You know, let's... Give me an example campaign pitch that you've done. All right. So, usually come in with... I have my little notebook with the list of campaigns I'm... I feel prepared to, if not run immediately, then I feel like I can get prepared within the next week or two. Mm-hmm. And I break it. I usually have a, a, a special title for each one, like, you know, Exploring New Worlds, The Birth of a Nation, Rise of Man, you know, just quick campaign titles that can be a little evocative, kind of give a hint of what the game's going to be about. And each one will have, like, the system I plan on using. So, oh, this one's going to be in D&D. This one's going to be... You know, playing uh, Savage Worlds Fringeworthy, or this one's going to be D20 Modern Bureau 13. What if they wanted a different system, but they, they like the idea of your campaign, but they want a different system? Usually I can work with that. I just tell them, well, you, I'm okay with that. Just give me a little bit of time to, to see how to port things over. It might delay us a week or two. But that's usually because I only come up with a, a campaign... That I I feel I've built a developed enough in my head to go ahead and run. Uh, but it also depends. Like I don't feel comfortable right now, at least trying to run Bureau Thirteen or Fringeworthy 
in the 5e D&D system, and I'm mm-hmm. rusty enough on the D20 system that I'm like, uh, I, I don't know. That one might take even longer to get prepared. But if somebody wanted to run one of my D&D settings in, say, Savage Worlds, it might take me a week or two to, well, I don't know. I'd have to look at it. I, I've noticed that... You have curved me. Yeah, I, I've noticed for, because I'm having to do this now with my four campaigns, they're all getting toward high level. I think they're all 15th to 18th level, so it's about time for me to start doing campaign pitches. I usually do mine, like, at the end of a session. You know, I might wrap up a little, you know, 15, 20 minutes early. And as, as I've mentioned before, while I was unemployed, I cracked out six different campaign ideas. So I've got plenty of stuff ready to go. And I give a list, okay, these are the, I'll, I'll do elevator pitches for each of them. And I'll sit there and write down, okay, this one likes this, and these are the alternates, this one like, And I just tabulate, okay, this is, this is the idea that's getting the most love, and I go by majority rule. Session zero, I'm usually making the, you know, how, how can I put this as, I have them urinate me a full large body of salt water, if you know what I'm trying to say here without being nasty. <laughs> and me an ocean about your character, and I whip up the character for them, they give me input. So yeah, I me it's it, it's weird. I usually do everything behind the scenes because I want to hit the ground running. Once I yeah. have them checked out the characters and okay, this is right, no change this. Okay, I forgot to mention this. Everybody's characters are set. We end one campaign, 2 weeks later we're right on another. So, yeah, when you mention this this session, uh, yeah. yeah, if you're dealing with the same group of players yeah. and, and you know, it's your like home team, yeah. your home group, then yeah, it's easy to kind of move from one campaign to the next. This is for more the idea that you're having to introduce new players to your group or maybe even new players to your game system. Ah. So usually, yeah. I, yeah. I, okay, yeah. I, so that's why I like campaign pitch is like I go ahead and throw out the systems and say, all right. Usually the first thing I talk about is actually the system. I have a, you know, two campaigns for D&D and I have like two campaigns for, for you know, the TriTech system. And... Most of the time, people are at least familiar with D&D. Most people haven't heard of Savage Worlds or, or, or TriTech or any, you know. So they might ask me, well, what is, what is that setting and what is that system? And I'll maybe give them a brief description, maybe show, you know, tell them how it's different from D&D if they are familiar with D&D. And, well, if they're not, then I just describe it as, you know, hey, this is a brand new system you're going to enjoy. Yeah, I had a terrible time at the beginning with uh, Savage Worlds because the system, to me, made no sense at all. You know, we're, we're, we're improving your ability by increasing your die size. To me, that was, to, was totally caught, you know, not, didn't make any sense to me. That's, you know, and that's the other one, like the, the one I'm looking at right now is Cortex, and it's it's very similar. It's your your attribute ratings are in, in the size of your die, not the, the number on, a, on the sheet so much. Yeah, and you know because I was I grew up with you know percentile systems and d d twenty so you know er, all the increments you know meant something you know it was easy to make a in my mind a a transfer to like percentage this is my chance of doing something okay but when you know but in Savage Worlds it's like you're trying to get a four okay the bigger the die the easier it is to get a four or better and I'm like yeah but. How do I, I didn't, how do I wrap my head around that? So that was a problem for me at the beginning. I've gone way past that, of course, long yeah. ago. But I'm saying is that I know a lot of new players sometimes. Um, they uh, 
you know that that could, things like that strange you know what to them are strange die mechanics mm-hmm. can really uh, can really mess with it. unless of course they are like total uh, 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 how do I put this nicely uh, they they love dice okay yeah. <laughs> and you know at which point you know I don't know how good the system is but you know um, Shadowrun you get to use a lot of dice in that game yeah. <laughs> And I know people that played that game just because they could bring out the bucket full of dice and roll it across the table. It just reminded me of the, the Vampire the Masquerade where, you know, your attribute was how many dice you rolled. Yeah. Oh, I got a 10, so I'm rolling all 10 of my dice now. But yeah, um, so that's one part of the, the campaign pitch is, is making sure the players know what systems they have available to them and which ones they are familiar or not familiar with, which ones they show interest, not show interest in. And then the setting itself, like, okay, this is going to be a D&D setting in a Bronze Age collapse-type world, you know, almost, you know, Greek mythology and Dark Sun-type survival, and or is it, you know, this is going to be your classic fantasy land, yeah. where, you know, it's, you know, or if it's, you know, Bureau 13, it's, you know, modern-day horror with a, a splash of, you know, levity here and there, and, you know, conspiracy and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, getting them interested in the setting... And you, they might have questions then. Usually settings don't get that many questions unless I'm tr- describing something truly off the wall. Like, okay, you're, you're, you live on a giant floating whale in space. Yeah, yeah, that's when... Then it, the, it, it, it might get some questions then. Right, right. And then it usually also follow up with the hook, which is the, the thing that makes this particular campaign stand out from others. So, like... I've, I've described it on previous podcasts before, but like I've got a, a fringe-worthy campaign that doesn't take place on Earth Prime. It's taking place on a completely different alternate where you, the sponsoring organization is, you know, a a tech company that discovered the portals, and they have you know okay. their reasons for why. And so, if that's usually helpful if they already are familiar with the system or a setting. So usually that's more evocative in D and D or useful in D and D. Usually just describing the setting of, oh, interdimensional exploration or, you know, modern day monster hunting is enough of a hook for systems like Bureau 13 or Fringe. Unless we, again, have been playing it for a while. It's a group of people have been playing this before. Then, you know, the hook might be more important to them. But for people who have been playing a lot of D&D or watching a lot of D&D on YouTube or Twitch, uh, Mm -hmm. the hook becomes a little bit more important there. It's like, well, how is this different from Critical Role? Is usually going to be the biggest thing. Yeah, I gotta I gotta watch that show because I wouldn't be able to answer that question. I, I I've watched the um, Vox Machina on, uh, yeah, on the, Netflix, the but I really haven't watched the actual play sessions on the uh, on YouTube. I, I mean, Critical Role. I enjoy it. If I, I I when I can watch it. My thing is, it's this is a weekly four hour game. Yeah. Why would I want to watch when I could be playing yeah that that that's yeah. kind of my and we're not smashing by no no no, no i, mean, no, I no, watched no, all of yeah before we say i watched all of their it. second campaign and i i love their second campaign although i i couldn't watch it towards the end i had to kind of play catch up after the fact but yeah i i love those guys those guys are amazing and, and matthew mercer is is a pretty good dm oh no i've been hearing he players. is yeah yeah a lot of my friends rave about him it's just like what do i have time to watch tv i'm planning four mm-hmm. different campaigns i'm surprised i can you know, do my show in this podcast here and then flat out. <laughs> but yeah, that, that is part of what the hook is there for is 
so I can say, hey, this is how this is different from the other games you've played. Well, you know, this is a a little bit more brutal setting, or this is a world where you have complete control over who the gods are because the gods have all been killed, and so you know you might become one or at least make one. Yeah, this, this stuff like that. This, this term, there's a term for this type of stuff: the elevator pitch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically in Hollywood, if you happen to bump into a casting director or whatever, and you're in an elevator with them. You have to get this idea out before he gets off the elevator. Hence, that's what. Minute. Yeah, that's what this this whole campaign pitch thing is about. With system setting and hook, you got okay. These are the Except mechanics. You get more than a minute. Well, yeah, these are the mechanics. This is the background. This is why it's different than anything else you've played to date. Yeah, and as soon as I saw this 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 idea in our group, I was like, oh. This hits home. As I said, I'm wrapping up four different campaigns. It's kind of, you know, stars are right, planets in alignment type thing. And it's weird, you know, 35 years of game mastering and my various campaigns are all sort of going to come to a head here. And so, yeah, I've been having to do this with my gamers. As I said, Jonathan's talking about more relatively new gamers, not the same group, and just, okay, this campaign's done. Let's move on to the next one. I have ideas. Yeah, it, it and it's weird just with, I have other people who want to run things, so along with the five or six ideas, I might have one or two other of my players who want to jump on the other side of the screen are like, okay, I have this idea. Perky Goth mentioned last time her Bronze Age campaign. Jeff DeRep is doing his Fringeworthy meets Skyrim idea. Mm-hmm. So, right. So yeah, it... I would love. I would love if my players wanted to jump on my side of the screen and run <laughs> adventures. I think that would be so fun. That'd be great, you know. Because, but uh, they don't. <laughs> I, I have one player who decided to run a campaign because he saw that I was always being the GM and he wanted to give me a chance to play. So I, I played D and D, you know, because it was the only game that he felt confident that he could run. Right. But which is which is fine. A lot of times, I think that when you pitch a campaign, you have to test you know your comfort level of your players because if they you know, yeah you know, I mean I, I know everybody loves D and D five because it's the latest greatest version and they've never ever seen a, another version that they think is better. But that's a lot of times these are new players who have never experienced right. before. And frankly, I think there's a lot of other systems out there that are much. Uh, easier to get in on than you know uh, than D and D five e. Oh yeah, especially depending on like if you're doing something that's not fantasy. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. But uh, and I have another suggestion, which is do not if you're a GM, do not feel intimidated by players and uh, who want to. S- use every resource that's out there it's perfectly okay to say no we're only going to play the 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 races and the characters that are in the player's handbook that's it <laughs> oh yeah no z did that with his uh he did the pathfinder 1e rise of the rune lords campaign which sort of fell apart because people had lives mm. and just but he has yeah. gm and that was the thing he said core rule book and i think advanced player's guide that's it yeah. Yeah, run what you're comfortable with. And I said, okay, yeah, yeah. 
you know, new players come in and all of a sudden they're supposed to know like 50 races and like 50 different, you know, sub sub variant classes and how to multi-class yeah. and all this stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, that is, I, you know, I know. It can be intimidating. Yeah. It's not only intimidating, but you just feel stupid. You feel like, you know, you're, you're under, you know, you're under choosing, you know, I mean, I have a character right now in that, that friend's game that I would like to respect out because the, the, the campaign did not go the way I expected it to go. And so I spec my character completely, completely wrong. So I always feel like everything that my character does is underwhelming. Uh, oh, yeah. Compared to the other players. Yeah. And it's certainly compared to the opponents he throws at us. And that's something, yeah, so. and that's something else to talk about it during that campaign pitch meeting is like the expectations. Like once I've gotten an idea of what system and say what campaign the, the players want to play in, then I start talking a little bit about okay, well, what's the tone of this one? Is you know, I see this as going, you know, I have in my head like, well, this is going to be kind of a serious storyline, but you know plenty of room for levity amongst the player characters you know it's you know like the witcher you yeah know, serious but there's time for the jokes there's time for that natural comedy of of character interactions and stuff like that but there will not be yeah. flying elephant you know balloon monsters just appearing out of nowhere this isn't going to be you know silliness for silliness's sake but some players might be wanting for that and if it looks like the the overall tone of the players is that they want something a little bit sillier or they want something even darker you know well that's the time to find this out and then say okay well i can maybe work this i can maybe work this into this campaign and we can make it darker or you know what if you guys are really wanting that let me try and maybe point you towards this other campaign that's that's a little bit more what i had in mind for that yeah i think that in with tone you should also need one that says genre because I have run into serious issues with people who have different interpretations of what genre. Oh yeah, you get people mm. going on like pulp or Iron Age superheroes, or well, fantasy. I meant more like you know low magic than high magic. Yeah, <laughs> I was thinking Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're thinking of Lord of the Rings. Yeah, the worst case I ran into was we were all playing four color superheroes and this guy wanted to play basically a uh, you know image anti-hero uh, <laughs> yeah. you know oh, yeah. different brooding edgelord kind of thing and, yeah. and with know. hundreds of pockets and pouches all over his uniform yeah. yeah yeah well not only that but also killing people uh. Mm. We're like going, no, this is four color. We don't kill people. We not. We're using a system that specifically is ninety percent likely to knock out your opponent rather than kill them. He says, so you taking, you know, a, a, a high power ri sniper rifle that you're going to, you know, be using for the entirety of the session, <laughs> just basically sniping people, you know, so you don't get attacked and they take like massive body damage, you know. Uh, not exactly what we're here to do. Yeah, you know, and uh, that was that was really tough with that character. I he was never happy playing the character because I was never allowing him to do what he wanted to do. Yeah, and that's yeah, that's why it's helpful to get that that discussion out of the way early. It's yep. like, all right, well, this campaign, I'm I'm wanting to, you know, and it 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 can be helpful to to think of an example, like okay, for this one, I'm thinking Game of Thrones, or this one, I'm thinking more. Sort of Shannara, or 
you know, this one I'm thinking more Supernatural meets Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which is usually how I pitch Bureau 13. Oh, okay. Oh, okay, because that's a really weird combo for me. <laughs> I'm like, why? Well, okay, yeah. But then I think about it, no, that's Bureau 13 to me. All right. Okay. Well, it's at least nowadays. That's one version of it for sure. Yeah, fair enough. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying no. I'm just saying <laughs> is that that's not the way I've, I've I've played it. But maybe I don't know what I'm playing. <laughs> I could, I, you, you know, I really haven't sat down and said what the hell game am I playing in Bureau Thirteen because I know what I'm running. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I know the characters that are in the game, but I'm just like, what are they? What what are their expectations here? Other than you know. Get a get get a job, get a mission, go hunt it. So tone is important. Uh, I think genre is important. I have no idea what genre I'm doing right here. By the way, I have no freaking idea. Okay, I mean it's kind it's it's basically until they run into the demon lords, which live in the big glass castles all the way at the horizon. You know, they're basically dealing with low fantasy. You know where you, you, you where things work because you get little demons to power them. You know oh, what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. You know, but uh, and everybody lives in like stone or wood houses, and uh, you know, there's lots of spirits and such, and it's it's kind of like you know it's this kind of bucolic fantasy world. You know, uh, I don't want to use generic because that I have no idea what that means. Um, mm. But yeah, so that's what I'm doing. Okay. But I mean, I literally, they had no idea before they went on this mission what, what this was going to do. They were, they were up in the Aurora Borealis talking to Luminous beings, and all of a sudden they're now going and they're in this fantasy world. And they're like, my, my players are like, okay, so what are we doing? You know, what weird freaking <laughs> world are we on this week? You know, it's kind of like the fringeworthy people do the yeah, same thing yeah. too, by This the way. is an established group too, right? Oh yeah, yeah, they've been playing with me for literally some of them decades. So yeah, so in some ways this is kind of they expect it. Yeah, <laughs> it is kind of it. Yeah, so yeah, if you're a new GM trying to get new players to join you to do this, then I would think there'd be a lot more talking than probably if you were just pitching a campaign. It either exist, uh, you know, saying, "Well, we know how uh, uh, JT likes to." Uh, to run his campaign, so hey, newbie, let me let me clue you in. This <laughs> yeah. is what he's going to be doing, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's nice to have someone to show for you on the side. Yeah, <laughs> this would also be the time where you can can talk about like um, any um, off limits topics that you have. So like, if you have, yeah. you know, the things that you need those consent cards for. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep repeating. My number one thing is death. Is death allowed? Because I think a lot of people would be a lot happier with their games if they said no. See, that's and this is usually where I tell people like my general depending on the campaign. Like I am not going to, in general, let you die due to bad luck. I might let you get messed up. I might let you get horrifically maimed due to bad luck. But yeah. I will not let your character die due to a poor role unless you do something stupid yeah it's not just them it's also the npcs it's really hard to murder hobo when nobody dies yeah Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean you can't abuse them but i'm just saying is is it you know they they keep coming back keep waking up and complaining about it (laughs) well and that's that kind of comes into one of the other things i talked to about with the characters is is that with the potential players is the narrative like how strong 
is the narrative in my game. I tend to be a very narrative-driven player, uh, GM, because, I mean... Could you explain that a little better? What, what do you mean by narrative? Usually, the rules are very flexible if it makes a good story. Uh, That's the way I look yeah. at it. So if even if and so that kind of goes back to the the not killing the player characters due to a, a random roll. If they get into a fight and they've prepared, and one of the player characters just gets a bad, just has a bad roll that gets them killed through no fault of their own, and I and it seems like it would be anticlimactic to me. They they're just knocked out. They're just maimed. I'm not going to kill them due to bad luck, especially if 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 I feel it. It would be poor narratively if it would not make a good story. Yeah. On the other hand, same situation. They get into a fight. This character does a mad dash that, you know, to save his friend from a fireball and he gets roasted alive. That is beautiful narrative. I'm going to let that character roast. Yeah. See, I interpret that entirely different. To me, narrative is how much description do you put into the situation that they're in? I mean, do you talk about the brocade in the in the, in the curtains on the on the walls and and the fact that like fifteen family members are on portraits and you know the 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 gilding around the 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 the, the, the you know how how hot you know uh, how many le- stairs go up to the daises and how you know what the uh, chamberlain looks like and all that stuff and how do they talk to each other do the players sit around while you basically have this five minute long conversation <laughs> going back and forth between the NPCs before the players get to do anything unless of course the players insist on basically doing something in which case <laughs> then they get added to the narrative right. I mean that's what I thought you meant when you no. were talking about the narrative I, I see that as like descriptiveness like how much yeah. detail are you, go, are you going into and okay. usually I don't go into that much unless it's again like something I think is really important to the plot. So when you use the word narrative, it sounds like what you're using is plot. Exactly. Okay. How much? Right, how much fine. of the plot? How much of the of this game is is plot driven? You know, do I have okay. a do I have a linear plot that I'm interested in telling yeah. in this campaign? Of course, you have how to be locked down to the railroad. Are you? And that's the thing. Like, you don't want to be completely railroading your players. But, no, no, that's you know. a cardinal sin among GMs. That's. But yeah. if you go ahead and tell them up front, hey, look, I have got a linear story I'm interested in telling. I, I think uh, Matt Colville, um, a YouTuber who talks about the Indian role-playing, had a perfect description of it. It's like, a linear story is The Hobbit. These these guys come together, they go to the Dragon's Horde, they, they They're heading the to the Misty Mountain, and these are the things that happen to them along yeah. the way. While a sandbox or non-linear would be Lord of the Rings, where you have all sorts of things going off one direction or another, and Everybody's going off and doing their own thing. Yeah, you hear about uh, something dark happening in Fangorn Forest. You want to go check it out? And there's neither one is necessarily good or bad. It's just a matter of if your expectation is, is different than the players, that's where you're going to have trouble. So if your players are expecting a sandbox, hey, we get to choose our own path through this story, and you were expecting a linear story where you know one beat leads to the next, and even though the players have freedom to do what they want, if you were expecting them to go rescue the princess and they said no, then you're going to have a bad time. Well, see, that, that this is where you're not being a jerk, but again, this is part of the plot, part of the narrative. Yeah, then there are consequences to that princess not being rescued. 
you can role play that. And I mean, you're again, you're not. We're not trying to advertise a adversarial relationship between players and the game master. No. The point. The point I'm trying to make is that if you have one idea of what you're doing and the players aren't up for it or aren't following it, that's where you're going to have stress or conflict. Yeah, you're going to have people complaining. Yeah, people are going to actually complain and go, okay, I feel like I'm getting railroaded here. You you have mm-hmm. this plot. And it's Yeah, so I, discussing it beforehand is good. Okay, this is a story about this. But I am saying that if you want to do it again, not stressing on adversary relationships in a group mm-hmm. okay they don't rescue that princess fine there are repercussions if that princess were to die you could role play that and if they say well, why is this all going on like that um you guys didn't rescue the princess you knew that she was to be rescued and you guys chose this these are consequences and uh, yeah yeah right yeah so, yeah right so the, the the king so the kingdom went to war against the neighboring kingdom instead of them having this nice little marriage yeah. of uh, unification yeah. which was the original plan yeah this isn't a video game the, the just because you didn't start the quest doesn't mean it didn't happen yeah right but and this is also I think a, a point where you can also talk to the players about their own like, like narratives like do you want like, do the players want to have their characters grow and evolve over the, the stretch of this campaign, or are they happy with How much them? of a backstory do right. they have? Exactly. Like, do you want to have these fleshed-out characters that become bigger and bigger or, or more and more, you know, detailed? Or are they happy to just play these single-note archetype characters through the thing? Well, also, you know, not, you know, not, not every, uh, you know, it's a construct, you know, in gaming, that everybody starts off at the same level with the same relative abilities. Mm. Okay, I've always been perfectly fine with people saying, "No, I'm going to play a high level character, but I understand that my role, therefore, is to nurture these other characters. I'm never going to gain any experience because I'm already at the top of my game. There's no reason why I might pick up some additional gear along the way, but I'm not gaining experience. I'm already hot stuff." But then, you know, whenever a situation comes where someone, some daring do is needed, then you're like turning to the player characters who are the fledgling ones and saying, okay, step up, time to go, you know, whatever, I'll have your back. <laughs> and, you know, and, and that, that takes, you know, there's a lot of players out there who are not able to do that because what will happen is, is as soon as they get into the battle, they're going to jump in front of the of the fledgling characters to protect them, yeah. but also to steal all the spotlight. You know? Yeah. But I've always thought that, you know, it, it made more sense from a story standpoint that you would have a mix of, of, of ability levels and such, you know, so, you know not everybody's going to be, you know, some everyone's going to have like a, something they're not good at, you know, but then every, but they're also going to have something they're really good at, you know, and they're not all going to be at the same level at the same time. And I kind of ran my first, you know, D and D campaign that way, uh, which I liked, uh, and the players, you know, but because what we did was is that uh, in those days we said, okay, whenever you know, whenever we start, you know, you you die, you bring in a new character at first level. We were like fifth, sixth, seventh, tenth level. Mm-hmm. We bring in a first level character. They're like, well, how are they going to survive? And I'm like, it's your job to protect them until they get up to the point where they can help you. And, you know, that 
that kind of, it depended on the players. That's where, again, your expectations, are you going to have to watch out for these other players, or do you want to just worry about your own character and nobody else? And that's where you can also talk about, like, combat. Like, for me, depending on the game, like, honestly, typically when I run Bureau 13, combat is optional uh, in a lot of cases. Yeah. I usually try and, and leave at least one, you know, one or two paths and that's just what I have planned. There's no telling what the players might come up with. But one or two, you know, paths through the the adventure where they can get through and solve the problem without any combat whatsoever. So it's not uncommon when I'm running Bureau 13 to have sessions with no combat. Yeah, Rich made the damn game where it's... I mean, he didn't say if, if you end up fighting, you failed. But he all... You know, the old Tritac system did... Uh, Hold the, hold the virtue of thinking your way out of a situation rather than fighting. Yeah, you still got experience mm-hmm. for fighting, but it wasn't, well, if you pulled a gun and pulled that trigger, yep, you, you failed entirely. And No, I mean, he made the whole tri-tax system, the rules part of it, where thinking your way out is optimal for you. Yeah, but then again, if I'm playing like Dungeons & Dragons... Yeah, I try to make sure there's at least one good combat per session. If not, you know, one yeah. big one and one or two smaller ones. It's just the nature of that system is geared towards It's kill combat. factor, yeah. Palladium, yeah. when they did their system, their experience is set where kill factor is less. And even Kevin Sambita did even say, yeah, I wasn't keen on the kill factor, so this is how I made my experience system. If you outthink your opponent, you're going to get a little more experience in killing them. Now, for me, because I run predominantly OGLD20, if you take care of a threat without outright killing it, that's worth one. So let's say I throw a CR-16 dragon at the party. Mm -hmm. If you get rid of it or stop it from being a threat by doing something other than killing it, guess what? You just now got experience for a CR-17 threat. So I mm. give my players that, and this is something I read in some OGL D20 thing years ago, and I just ported that rule over to Pathfinder 1E. So my players are starting to pick up on that a little bit as far as, oh, wait a minute, if we just turn him into a statue, we didn't kill him, but he's no longer threatening the village. Yeah. And they're, they're starting to pick up on this now, I've noticed more and more. I'd say over actually over the past year and a half i think my my general group of players which they span two to three games depending there are some that are only in one game but Mm. i have like you know carries in two furs in two jeff is in two so yeah they're starting to realize and i doubt they're conferring although i have had players confirm with each other behind my back um Oh, heck, one of them ruined a campaign and then later joined the game and then they told me, oh, yeah, remember that one campaign you ran? Yeah, I was contacting him about the science and he's there giggling. I'm like, you son of a... But no, <laughs> I that's something that I do is as far as combat, I've run games where there's no combat. It's all role-playing and I give them the appropriate experience for role-playing. If their skill rolls, okay. I remember a chart in D20 Modern, it was like, if you do something that requires like a DC 35 role, like really high level, like physical sciences role, or it's equivalent to a CR six. So they still get experience. Yeah. The, the game 
if if I make it where okay, and these players they neutralize some and they kill others, I compute out of the experience, and they're like, well, wait a minute, those are all six CR, you know, ten. Um, you par you permanently paralyze five of them. They're not going to be doing anything. They're going to have to be carried into basically an asylum. Yeah, they're <laughs> they're they're now one CR higher, so that you get the experience for that. You didn't end this all in total bloodshed, and. There are some people, and the thing here about combat a little or a lot, you're going to get those players, and I've had this in my group. I, uh, One of my now late original gamers was all about subplots. The, 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 he was also, and I'm not besmirching, you know, don't speak ill of the dead. No, don't speak false of the dead. He was the one-shot, one-kill kind of guy, and if he didn't get drop that guy in the first one, he got a little, you know, <clears throat> you know. But irritable, it, yeah, yeah. But yeah, all about subplots. And there was times he was trying to like force it into the. And I'm like, um, dude, you know, there are people that don't want to do this, and you're kind of forcing it on them, and that's rude. So that's something else you got to gauge. Is yeah. it going to be? Is it going to be? Is it going to be a dun a massive dungeon crawl where that's what you guys do, and you're salvaging weapons and ammo from fallen enemies? Or is this going to be a game about, oh, it's political intrigue in the court of Duke, you know? Yeah, and then you want the guy who, you have the guy who's, all he plays is murder hobos, and he's having to deal with, okay, you need to make your etiquette roll to find out which fork you pick up correctly. <laughs> They're not going to like that game. Yeah, and that, that would go under, like, the tone and the narrative is like, okay, are you are you guys wanting to play the, the, the murder hobos, or, or do you want to have your own you know, storylines going on that you develop at, you know, it, in addition to the main storyline that I'll be developing and all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah. Yeah, I'm running, I'm about to start running a Hinterland game with uh, Carrie and Gina for us about due to work schedule. And Carrie has this thing about, okay, they went, the two sisters came through and made the left turn into the Hinterland. They got separated. One's on one environment, New Akron, another is going to be on another environment. So part of the plot line is, and she leadership, she's going to make her the, the, the lost sister her cohort. Yeah, it's going to be, okay, this is part of her plot line. We're trying to find this sister. She was with me before the white flash of light in the left turn. So, yeah, that's a plot line that I'm going to be bringing into this Hinterland campaign. Yeah, that, that that's a good thing with the, ele or the elevator pitch, and it's more mm -hmm. toward leading into the session zero is... And, and Bruce mentioned it, backstory. If yeah. this character is a backstory, you really don't want to pee on the character's backstory because there are, we, and we've all Not had it, well, we've all had our <laughs> players that, this elaborate backstory, I'm the 15th descendant of this monarch and my family has right. been deposed and you're doing nothing for him getting his throne back. Right. And, but yeah, yeah that's, and that's something I'll, we'll talk about when we talk about specifically Session Zero, but yeah, usually at this point, you know, after you've talked about the system, the setting, the hook, and you've described the tone of this campaign and, and how you plan on doing combat and narrative and all that, um, usually if the, you know, the majority of players are up for it and they've said, okay, yes, that sounds like the campaign I want to play, then that's when you can, can discuss the more nuts and bolts administrative stuff. Like, okay, well, here's the schedule I'm looking at. You know, what, you know, that's when you kind of work out a schedule. It's like, all right, what's a good night for everybody? Can we do it weekly, bi-weekly? How's it going to work out? And then before you send them on home, assuming that you are kind of splitting this up across two actual get-togethers, um, you can provide them with your, you know, your campaign materials that you've got prepared. It's like, 
provide them with some backstory or lore for your your campaign setting if if necessary. I wouldn't provide too much for Bureau Thirteen because it's for me at least part of the fun is the that first mission where they're fight the monster and get inducted into the bureau. Yeah. So up until that point, most of the characters are all their the backstory is the world as they know it. So yeah, you provide your backstory and your lore, maybe some maps of if you have a, a local area you plan on starting yeah. in. Yeah. Uh, you might throw some character suggestions at them and say, hey, all right, if we're going to play this campaign, these are some characters that you might want to consider looking at, maybe consider playing. Oh, we need a healer, we need a wizard, we need a fighter, we need a rogue, yeah. we need a bard. Or, like, yeah. or, and, or and stuff like, if you're if you're going to play a healer, might I suggest one of these gods or these domains? Yeah, if you're going to yeah. play a fighter, might I suggest... Of course, you don't want to say they have to do these things, but... You might, especially if they're newer players. Yeah. You want to point them towards the things that might help. For new players, that kicks off the railroad alarm right off the bat. Just we need this. Mm-hmm. Can you play this? That that there are some people go. Okay, you're railroading me. You're saying I have to play this type of character. Yeah. No, it, you, you you don't want to tell them what they have to play, but you can say if you if you're having trouble coming up with an idea, here are some things that might be help. Yeah. And then usually at that point, you send them off. Uh, for me, for this pitch meeting I have planned coming up in the next mm, month, you know, I'll send them home, invite them all to my, if assuming they want to play D&D, which is what I'm expecting, invite them all to my D&D Beyond account and invite them all into the same campaign so that they can all uh, okay. pull from my D&D book collection. Oh, God, what is, there's a site out there. I want to say it's like Obsidian Circle or Obsidian Window or something like that, where you can put... Yeah, Obsidian... Yes, Obsidian something. Yeah, okay. And you can sit there and boom, this is my campaign syllabus. We're typing out what each adventure is. And people Mm -hmm. can go to this site and read about these campaigns. And I think Blix had one up many ages ago. Yeah, you you literally, as you go along in your campaign, you drop more information in, and it's their responsibility to go and and, and check yeah. it out. So you have a basically an online resource that they can you know that they can check out and, and make comments on or whatever, ask questions. Yeah. So, but mostly it was a place for you to keep this information. So even if you went someplace and you didn't have your books or whatever, you didn't have to worry about you know the dog you know losing stuff right because yeah. you know. I, I can't tell you how many Dog times my character. I have. <laughs> well, no, I, I mean, I'll open up a um, a, a notepad, you know, in Windows, and I'll type in a whole bunch of campaign notes as we're going along, and then at the end of it, I'm like, okay, I'm tired. Press the <laughs> press the shut off button, and notepad no! doesn't automatically save. No, no auto save. Right. Another uh, yeah. site like that that I use is World Anvil, which is very similar. It's it's set up that you can put all your campaign notes in there. You can separate it out to locations and characters and, and species that are in your campaign. And you can also, you know, have some some of it shielded from players. You know, you can invite them in so they can look at the public stuff, but not the private stuff ah. that's just for you. No, you, you say you provide campaign material. Let's see, backstory lore for the campaign. Okay, yeah. Uh, Character creation suggestions, requirements, yeah, other materials you think may get. Yeah, usually I've been having to send PDFs to people. Like, I have a new player. Her name is Courtney. She is in the third. And, of course, Star Trek, you know, I throw all sorts of stuff. We've got a Ferunian gnome. Courtney is playing, and she came up. What is it? This is a history I'm pulling from my retro-future steampunk mind. So, she is a half-elf. She is a swashbuckler, air sh- aethership type thing. And 
okay, I have a mage. It, in, my, in the Kelvin universe I'm running, magic has been made real. And if you look into... Magic is in the Star Trek universe. Look it up on Memory Alpha, the Megas 2 animated episode. So it's there. You could feasibly bring magic into Star Trek. So this guy did it. And then he went back in time to do it earlier. So <laughs> this, this IMA that Courtney's playing... Okay, I want to understand chronomancy. Okay, we go off-world. There's a place. Magic. Okay, yeah. Get magic books. I want to learn chronomancy. So I had to send her the PDF of Temporality by Dark Dark Horse Games. And it's basically D20 Future Time, or D20 Magical Time Travel. So she has these spells now, which start tampering with time. So I sent her that PDF, because that's something she's going to need to explore this new character arc. Yeah, I'm a swashbuckler. I want to start dabbling in magic. Nymph... She, uh, tinkerer, te- you know, typical how I do gnomes, tinkerer, and if it's text high enough, techie. So there was another PDF, Steamworks by Sylvan Publishing, 12 to Midnight's Fantasy imprint. I sent her that PDF. Okay, this is the stuff you can do with this character. Let me know. So yeah, usually with a campaign pitch, you know, if there's, well, I want to run this type of character, well, I have the PDF for you, and Again, brute yeah. folders upon folders, yes. When I'm sending them off, I'm, I'm giving them the materials that they might find useful, and then I'm saying, all right, so over the next week or two weeks until our next session, think of what you want to play. Don't don't quite put anything down just yet, or at least nothing in, in stone just yeah. yet, but think about what you, you might want to play, how you're, how, what kind of character you want to play that fits into this setting in this world. And so that then when we come back, we have session zero. That was it. Got the subject right. down so yeah, I hope that describing the the idea of the campaign pitch meeting and the and the session zero as as we all or a lot of people are gaining traction with the idea of you know talking with your players ahead of time, especially when it's a new group or new players and you're starting a new campaign, getting together, kind of taking a little bit of a a set methodical go through of the campaigns you want to run and and creating the characters together for that campaign and and can ease you in and help help start off your new campaign at a much smoother start and avoid some complications that would maybe surprise you later. Of course, you're never going to get rid of all your surprises and all your complications, but you can make it a little bit easier and have a little bit of fun. And if you have your own methodology for pitching a campaign or, or doing your session zero, reach out to us. Trav, you know how they can reach us, right? That would be... the Fans of the Gaming on the Frontier podcast, Bureau 13 Agents Everywhere, Fringeworthy RPG fans, our Podbean site, tritechsystems.podbean.com, iTunes, because we drop our podcasts there, and if you know us on social media or even our emails, by all means, ask us. We are more than willing to help you out as best we can. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and those first three groups he was talking about are actually groups on Facebook. Yes, yes. Right. Yeah, those Facebook groups, you can reach out to us there and tell us what you do or ask questions, and we will be happy to you know, tell you why you're wrong or why you're right. But until then, we hope you have fun. We hope you have wonderful start to your campaigns, and we'll talk more next week. Until then. This is Bruce Sheffer saying... There are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Gaming on the Frontier podcast is wholly owned by its hosts. It is released under the Creative Commons 3.0 license. 
No commercial reproduction and any use of any element of the podcast must be attributed to the Gaming on the Frontier podcast. Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org, colon 8027.